Welcome to BIO, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. BIO is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm BIO member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with a biographer about his or her work. This time, we interview Indiana University professor Tyrone McKinley Freeman, author of Madam C.J. Walker's Gospel of Giving, Black Women's Philanthropy During Jim Crow. It was published by the University of Illinois Press in September 2020. I started this conversation with Tyrone Freeman by asking him who was Madam Walker and why he chose to focus on this African-American woman's life. Madam C.J. Walker was a early 20th century entrepreneur and philanthropist who developed a beauty culture company that became very successful during the height of the Jim Crow period. And so her claim to fame is, is becoming very wealthy, reaching millionaire status. And so her story has kind of reverberated over the past 100 years uh, because of that extraordinary success that she had. And she's known for being an innovator in beauty culture, a trailblazer, a founder of kind of modern Black cosmetology, if you will. And so she's a very important figure in our history. And so I was drawn to her because the way in which we tell her story, we usually start with that, the, the business and the wealth. And then sometimes we say, oh yeah, she, she gave to charity and she was kind of engaged <laughs> in this struggle for freedom. <laughs> I wanted to know more about what that looked like. I'm a scholar of philanthropy. And so that's what drew me to her. I've known about her story since I was a child, but I wanted to know exactly what it meant for her to have been so active in various movements, using the lens of philanthropy to do that, um, wanting to know what it meant for her to give, why did she give, what motivated her, and really the context for all of that, and then use that to center that as a new lens for viewing her life. And that leads to this new examination of her and, and retelling of her story in a very different way that gives us deeper insights into who she was as a person, but then also ends up being kind of this biography of Black women's generosity, because that's the culture and the ethos that produced her. Great. You know, since she built her wealth on Black women's hair and care, and as a man, <laughs> that would not be something that you would necessarily uh, normally gravitate to. So I was wondering how you, in your research, not just on the business side, but in terms of what her business was <laughs> and how it resonated with Black women, how you were able to navigate and deal with you know, all the issues around that. Yeah, no, that is a great question. Thank you for asking that. Um, so part of it was, again, I was drawn to philanthropy. So my area of expertise is understanding philanthropy. By that, I should say, I don't mean this model of what the wealthy do with their extra money. That's not what I'm talking. I'm talking about the full ways that people give of themselves to help others. And that can mean money. It can also mean time. It can mean advocacy and service and other things. And so I really wanted to know exactly what that looked like for Madam Walker. So that's what drew me to her 
because of the way in which she's been attached to that, but there wasn't a real deep investigation into that. So as I got into it, what I quickly learned was that while uh, a lot of the histories that have been written about philanthropists had focused on wealthy white men, and then the few that have begun to come out over the past two decades that focused on women were about usually about the white wives or sisters or daughters of those wealthy white men, it right. was leaving out Black people altogether. And so I wanted to find a way to understand Walker in this larger philanthropic history of the country, uh, as well as a way to position her and the larger culture of giving by, for, and about Black people, that, that African Americans are not just recipients, which is the way they're all too often depicted in the media or in the history, but they have a deep history of giving themselves from the beginning of their experience. And Walker is a part of that history. So for me, as a man to study this, I was very intentional in um, connecting with Black women's historians, um, benefiting from communications and conversations with folks who have been writing about Walker and others. And so I took that approach because I wasn't really interested in the beauty culture dynamics. There are a lot of historians that have investigated that and done an excellent job. So I, I point the reader in the direction of those folks. I really wanted to know about the role of philanthropy in all this. So I, I give you the background of the company and the story and the details of beauty culture. And for deeper dives, I point people to some of the other historiography to look at those. I'm introducing this element of Black women's philanthropy into the conversation to broaden out our picture and understanding of who Walker was and why she was so consequential. That's wonderful. Um, in the book, you write that she viewed giving as a joy um, mm. and that it was a joy that came out of both her Christian faith as well as, as you indicate, her inborn inclination. So how did you arrive at that conclusion? Yeah, so there's, uh, Madam Walker gave several interviews, and there's also a lot of statements in some of her private correspondence where she's talking about some of her giving. And that's what I mean by the, the book is Madam Walker's Gospel of Giving. And that's what I meant. The Gospel of Giving is my attempt to articulate her philosophy behind giving because she did not stop to write down what it was, right? But she certainly lived it. So I had to kind of go back and retrace her steps and kind of compile or compose this from her lived experience. And so um, for her to say it was a joy, I and mean, there's several spots in the archive where this kind of keeps coming up. I was drawn to that because one, the larger context is very important. She lived during a period in the history of philanthropy in America that's known as the scientific philanthropy era. Era. And now, this is exactly was that. Yeah, so she was born in 1867, so two years after emancipation, and she dies uh, right, you know, with World War One, 1919. So there's this 50-year period that she's um, uh, she's here, and there's this movement of change that's happening where there are this the kind of this positivist, enlightenment-focused approach to reform that is very critical of charity. This notion of giving one-to-one -to, -one to people impulsively or emotionally as you encounter a starving child on the corner or those kinds of things. There's this group of scientific philanthropists who emerged during this era who says that kind of giving does more harm than good. We need to look at the larger causes of that child's hunger and deal with that rather than just alleviating this one child's case. And so they're very much about, you know, this shouldn't be emotional. This should be very rational. It should be very scientific and strategic. And here she is in the midst of talking about the joy and feeling really good and connected and in community with the people that she's giving to. So it really runs counter to a prevailing idea of the time, which was fascinating to me. And then it also speaks to her religious identity. Uh, she was born into a Baptist family 
But later in her young adulthood, she converts to the African Methodist Episcopal Church. And that's a consequential change for her because when she becomes involved with the, the AME Church in St. Louis as this young 20-something mother who's been widowed, she's already an orphan, she's poor, she's struggling, Jim Crow is being erected around her, the AME Church becomes this place of refuge and really helps her kind of get back on her feet and get established. And then when you think about what the AME Church is doing during this post-emancipation era. They're building schools in the United States and overseas. They have this vibrant print and oral culture with publications and, the, and addressing the leading debates of the day, Black people in charge, and, and they also are funding and creating other institutions, orphanages, old folks' homes. So it really is this new world compared to this small um, Delta, Louisiana, this small town that she was born into. And so the joy she speaks to also is this Christian connotation. AME Church has teachings on charity, and there are specific references. The Lord loves a cheerful giver. She references that in one of the interviews that I cite. So it, for her to kind of bring forward this ethos is very important. And now, uh, you know, 100 plus years later, we have research which shows that there are indeed physiological changes when you give that do make you happier, healthier, and feel more connected to others. But here she is articulating that in the absence of that kind of biological evidence, but just going from her own experience of living it. Okay. I guess I want to kind of stick with the religious aspect for a second. Because she was so active in the AME church, both in St. Louis and then when she moved to Indianapolis, were you able to conduct research in the AME church archives? So, yeah, so I, I, I did a lot of work looking at the historiography and being in conversation with folks to find out what, what was going on and what was involved there. And the autobiography of some of the bishops uh, and those archival documents were very helpful in terms of understanding, again, what was going on at the time. You know, uh, Daniel Payne was the bishop during her lifetime, and he's left behind a, a lot of print materials that were very helpful in understanding this. And then, of course, right, every good AME, right, knows about Richard Allen, and there's a, a a deep line of of archival information about Richard Allen and the ways in which he held up values related to self-help and mutual aid. Just for people who don't know, who was Richard Allen? So Richard Allen is is the founder of of the AME Church and really starts uh, the denomination and is someone who kind of repeatedly shows up in the history and culture because the the church looks to him uh, as someone who's an exemplar. Uh, He was enslaved and he he goes on to lead this life that enables this creation of this church. And he's also someone very much committed to helping his people overcome racism. So uh, he's a legendary figure in the church and Walker would have known about him and his story and she was also surrounded by the women. This was a chance for me too to tell more of the story of the women of the church because it's women like Jesse Batch Robinson, who was a member of St. Paul's AME Church in St. Louis, where Walker joins. Um, women like that took young Sarah under their wings. Actually, Sarah Breedlove was Madam Walker's birth name um, and took her under their wing and really helped her get back on her feet. And and a woman like Jessie Batch Robinson, she was a school teacher in St. Louis. She was active in the church. She was head of the Mike Missionary Society, which was a women's organization inside the church that was doing a lot of charitable work. She was also part of a fraternal order and part of the National Association of Colored Women. So she's very much in this tradition of the race woman of the era. Uh, and is modeling these kinds of behaviors 
for young Sarah. And it's women like that who kind of socialize her into this type of giving and engagement which makes sense if we think about, we usually learn this kind of thing from our parents, but Sarah was orphaned at the age of seven, right? So, so it's these surrogates who come along who are giving activists engaged in the struggle that become very important milestones for her. That brings up a point of, she lost her parents when she was very young. How did you find any archival material about her younger years leading up to her moving into marriage and then having a daughter and moving on from there. Yeah, so there's not much that has survived there. Um, so Alilia Bundles has written a very powerful, important biography of Madam Walker. And Miss Bundles is Madam Walker's great-great-granddaughter, but she also is an award-winning journalist. So she brought a very much investigative eye to her work. And so I used a lot of the work that she had done to kind of lay some of the foundation of, of Madam Walker's early life, because there, there aren't a lot of documentation regarding those early periods. So what I look to are um, interviews that Madam Walker gave about her earlier life, as well as looking at what was going on in some of the cities that she was living in, going on inside the church and inside some of the organizations that she was a part of to piece together and make connections with things that were being said or shown or that are not being shown in, in the archives. Okay. So now, how did you deal with the archives of the Walker Company as well as her personal documents? They're kind of all mixed together ah. <laughs> in the collection. And so the Indiana Historical Society holds Madam Walker's papers. It also holds the papers of her lieutenant, her right-hand man, Freeman B. Ransom, who was a Black attorney who worked for her company. I talk about historian in the book as well. Um, and so I very much uh, went through kind of, you know, all these different folders and looking at these documents. And then I also, uh, there were archives uh, in Chicago, the Vivian Harsh collection that were important for understanding this. Marjorie um, Stewart Joyner's papers were there. She was the person who ran Madam Walker. Walker schools. There were also some Walker items at the Beinecke Library on Yale's campus that I visited and several electronic archives, newspapers, Black newspapers were so important. As you know, the, the Black newspapers would kind of, it's kind of like this diary. They would tell you, you know, where people are moving around, where they're going, what they're doing. And so it's between those various sources that I kind of try to piece together where she was, what she was doing, and, and the, the networks and relationships that she was having with people and with organizations through which she was giving. And again, sometimes this is money. I should say the book is organized into chapters based on the different types of gifts that she gave. And only one is about money. So I'm, I'm talking about the various ways that she's giving of herself and showing you the different kinds of, of networks that she's participating in. Mm -hmm. so, um, so it's very much kind of looking at what's available in the archives, consulting relevant historiography and trying to piece together and triangulate those kinds of things. To, to make some sense of it. So clearly with archives spread in various parts of the country, how do you organize all of those materials? You know, so in the moment when they're at, you know, visiting the site or preparing to visit a site, right, is, you know, always very careful to kind of document the, the folders and the boxes and where things are coming from and don't want to lose sight of that, which became very helpful later during the, uh, the production process because the, the copy editors and the fact checkers were like, is this number right? And that sort of thing. I was so glad I had 
all these detailed notes to be able to go back and, and confirm the citations. Um, so that's the kind of the starting point. And then it really becomes thinking about well, what's going to help me understand what's going on at any given moment. And so one example, early in the book, I recount this conversation that Madam Walker's having through a series of letters with her and Booker T. Washington about supporting Tuskegee. She's very much a supporter of Booker T. Washington and his school in Alabama. She believes in what he's doing. She wants to support him. She also, from a political standpoint, wants to kind of show him that she's doing a good work as a businesswoman, that she deserves respect and, and should be engaged just like he's engaging Black business owners around the country through the, the National Negro Business League. So then that gave me an opportunity to consult Tuskegee's archives, see what they might have had about that kind of interaction, uh, what was going on at Tuskegee at that time, what was going on in Washington's life, uh, and try to make sense of this conversation that they're having regarding this gift that she's making and why it's so important. So, you know, it's kind of thinking about those things and, and what would help bring additional insight to uh, these moments I'm seeing in the archive to try to understand. And, and for Walker, and I, and I write about this too, that uh, the silences and absences in the archive are a little bit different because, you know, we have a very large collection of her materials, primarily because one of the employees of the company who lived in Indianapolis her whole life kept a lot of this stuff and then eventually turned it over. So on the one hand, there's a lot of stuff there, but on the other hand, to this point I'm making about philanthropy, it's not like there's a folder dedicated to all of her gifts and then you just go to that one and pull it all out. It really much is this thread across her lifetime. So it's kind of going back and trying to pick up on these threads as they are being, you know, lived out in her life and trying to make sense of them. Yes. <laughs> so now <laughs> you mentioned, obviously, her business was the foundation and, and enabled her to give and to give broadly. But education was really important to her. So how did she create the Walker Schools? Yes, the business eventually becomes something that allows her to amplify and accelerate her giving. But I point out that giving begins for her in her early 20s when she's this poor, struggling, orphaned and widowed young mother in St. Louis being helped by these other Black church women who then engage her in giving. And so I think that's a very important starting point because that's different than the typical narrative we get about philanthropy. The typical narrative is you're supposed to spend your life accumulating wealth. And then once you've made it, then you turn and become serious. You set up foundations. You start thinking about others. That's not Madam Walker's story. Hers is one of giving and engaging as she could. And then as she acquires more, she gives more. And so that's what I articulate as her gospel of giving. And that's something that fundamentally distinguishes her from the other leading white philanthropists of the era. Uh, but it's very much indicative of the way that Black women have, have always done this. And so then education becomes an important vehicle for expressing this kind of generosity and disengagement. There's limited options for education for Black folks. And so she creates these set of Walker Beauty Schools where you could go and earn a credential and you could either start working for the Walker Company or you could hang your own shingle and kind of do hair out of your own living room. Or she even had what, what seems to be kind of this early program where she would give you money to help incubate a salon and give you money to, to renovate a storefront and kind of get going. So she had these kind of different entry points or pathways for Black women mm -hmm. to build this kind of financial independence. And the schools become an important strategy. And this is why her relationship with Washington 
takes on added importance because she very much admires what he's doing. She's also, I should say, friends with people like Mary McLeod Bethune, who has her own school in Florida, Charlotte Hawkins Brown, who has her own school in North Carolina. So these are her friends as well, right? And they're all navigating the politics of Black education because most of them have to go to white philanthropists, right, to get resources to educate Black children. And that comes with lots of strings and like, but with when Walker is giving and supporting them, we don't see those same kind of strings. So we see her creating a curriculum for her school that allows people to learn the fundamentals of beauty culture and how to style hair, how to do other massages and understanding the science of hair and scalp diseases and all these kinds of things. There's also business management techniques in the textbook. And there's also this idea that you have to give that you need to be engaged in the struggle, that this isn't just about capitalism and creating wealth. This is about engaging and using this as a platform to support the race and and, and contribute something. So you can get this kind of very, very interesting education through the Walker schools, and it evolves. Um, I show in the book later in the 1930s and 40s, their basketball teams and beauty pageants and all, it kind of begins to take on some of the, the culture of, of more traditional college campuses, if you will, if you look at something of the yearbooks and the things that some of the students at these schools were doing. But it speaks to her role as an educator, which again was not something that previous biographers had delved much deeply into. But education and the connection with philanthropy for African-Americans is very strong. And I had to go investigate that and show, again, this different giving relationship that she has with the Black schools. She supported a lot of Black colleges. And so those Black college presidents don't have to do the same kind of political dances with her that they have to do with Andrew Carnegie and John D. Rockefeller and the other industrial philanthropists, which is important. And then we see her also kind of building her own curriculum and engaging her students in ways that can get them onto pathways for for economic independence, which is important for then integrating them into these northern industrial urban economies that are emerging during this time period, which is a contrast with Washington, who has this agricultural focus and is actually telling Black people, do not go north. There's nothing good for you up there. So there's just a a lot of interesting dynamics there to balance and engage. I noticed that you talked about her giving but also her spending, (laughs) that that her lawyer and financial officer really had to get on her case and stay on her case about her spending both personally and when she gave, not always keeping records. So given that she didn't always keep records, how were you able to provide some of the rigid detail in your book where you literally say she gave $50 here or $1,000 there or whatever? Yeah. yeah, so there are various receipts, um, donor acknowledgement letters from institutions, and then there are also the correspondence between her and Freeman B. Ransom is very rich because she was constantly on the road and he's back in Indianapolis kind of manning the ship, if you will. And so she would you know, go on this tour of, of several different cities. And one of the first things she would do is write letters back to him about what's going on, what she's doing, how much product she moved or how many people were at her presentations. She would also say things like, oh yeah, I gave money to the local YMCA or I gave money to this person. I did this. So she's kind of telling on herself, if you will, kind of laying things out. 
So it's a combination of there's some formalized receipts there and there's some other, there are references that then I can go backtrack and look. So she might reference that she gave money to Tuskegee so I can go check Tuskegee's records and, and it, it might show up there. It's very much that kind of, of piecing things together and trying to follow this. And you're right on the consumption part. He he was very concerned about you know her spending. She enjoyed her wealth and she was not ashamed uh, of that. He's trying to put her on a budget and you know, Madam Walker's not having that. So she's... <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, he brings her daughter into it, like, please, can you help me talk to your mom? Because I'm trying to preserve what she's building here, but it's not getting through. And she's like, you know, what do you want me to do? She doesn't listen to me. <laughs> so you get to see the family dynamics, too, and the tremendous respect that emerges between Ransom and Walker. So as a researcher, how much time did you have to spend on going through the details of the receipts? and the letters and trying to match those so that you really get a true picture of how she spent her money and how she gave. Yeah, so in total, this is I've spent about a decade on this project and this is in part because a part of it started as my PhD dissertation. So you had that part where I was in school and then afterwards coming out and then kind of stepping away from it from a little bit and coming back to it to expand it into a book and to really transform it. So I spent a lot of time, like I said, in the Indiana Historical Society in Chicago, uh, all these different archives trying to make sense of that. And on one hand, I knew what I was looking for, but I didn't. Right. It's like I didn't know where it would show up. Also, being in conversation with the archivists, right, who know the collections best, is important to do that. Um, so I'm indebted to people like Wilma Moore, who is the late archivist of the Indiana Historical Society, and she stewarded the Madam Walker papers and other collections related to African Americans. I would sit down with her all the time and talk with her about what I was seeing and finding, and, and you know, having partners like that were so critical to navigating such a big collection and also trying to make sense of it. And then how did you sell the project, given that there is Alilia Bundle's biography of her great-great-grandmother. And I think there's at least one or two other books about her life and her contributions. So how did you find a publisher? Well, so first I should say, actually, the project kind of started with Miss Bundles because I reached out to her and told her what I was thinking. Like, I wanted to know more about Madam Walker's philanthropy. And she's like, you know, that's a really good idea. And she said, check out those women in St. Louis. There's something going on with those women in St. Louis when she was there. And that just kind of set me off and running. So I'm very privileged to be in community and conversation with her for years. But then the process of taking it to the press, um, I joined the Association for the Study of African-American Life and History and regularly attend their conferences. Mm -hmm. And I went to a session that was on how to get your book published. And there was a presenter there who said, go to the exhibitor booths and talk to the editors. They're here. And I was like, wow, they're here. Like I thought, you know, in my, I was a fundraiser before I became a professor. And so working for different nonprofits, the person manning the booth at the fair or the festival usually kind of drew the short sticks. I didn't think, (laughs) right. It didn't compute to me that these folks might be editors. I thought they might be interns or just whoever's turn it was to go, right? right? So I went and I met Don Durante, who was the acquisitions editor at the time. And we just had a wonderful conversation. And what really impressed me about her approach is I had talked to some other editors as well too. And, and they were always interesting conversations, but Dawn distinguished herself because she had a lot of questions about my own field. She's like, well, what is philanthropic studies? And what are you trying to do? And help me understand how does this connect? And so she thought it was a great idea. And so we kind of stayed in communication and 
and I, you know, the next few conferences, I kept visiting with her and, and she would give me some tips and some things to think about. And then we finally, I said, hey, here's the proposal. You know, what do you think? And so she very much kind of helped steward me through that process. So I'm, I'm very grateful to her. And then the, the resulting team at the University of Illinois Press has been wonderful. It's just been a beautiful experience all the way through. That was author Tyrone McKinley Freeman, author of Madam C.J. Walker's Gospel of Giving, Black Women's Philanthropy During Jim Crow. It was published by the University of Illinois Press in September 2020. We recorded this interview online via Zoom on November 22nd of last year. To learn more about BIO or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm BIO member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Alani Hodge created our theme music. And until next time, thanks so much for listening and have a wonderful day.